Ladies and gentlemen, it's your buddy Dev here again. So, where are we at? What is today? Today's Monday. Monday, September 14th, 2020. The easiest, most anxiety-free year ever. Well, I don't know about you, but um, I got really uh, aware of what social media was doing to my brain over the past month or so. And it's not that I'm spending a, an exorbitant amount of time on it. It's just that the way that these programs and these applications have been structured is such that it um, rewards you very quickly and uh, efficiently for participating in them. And I've got a few friends who recently have been uh, talking about the same thing. They're just like, wow, this is um, where a lot of the anxiety stems from. So about a month ago, as is sort of tradition for me, I went through a uh, another period of just getting rid of everything in my life that um, was potentially uh, slowing me down or addictive or, or what have you. Little things like what I eat or what I watch or how much work I choose to do during the week. Any of these things become a place for me to sort of uh, offshore some of this anxiety and sort of pretend it doesn't exist and there's a there's a certain there's a certain value in that for sure there's a certain value in work and as a sideline I think even when I first started these podcasts I had been questioning what the function of my work was I think it's easy to sort of go down avenues that tend to be sort of um, emotionally or intellectually nihilistic and find reasons why you can rationalize that doing your work is of no real value. But recently I, I've sort of changed my tune with that and I started recognizing that work is very important to me. and. I guess one of the main reasons is because it gives me a purpose and to be able to have that in a period of such unease I'm incredibly thankful for but with that comes a certain amount of responsibility on my part and that responsibility is up to me to not allow the work to become obsessive in the ways that it has before because then the function of the work is no longer about um, having a a uh, purpose and it's more about having a distraction and amidst this sort of purging of a lot of different things in my life nothing dramatic just little things sugar or whatever coffee believe it or not um, I started recognizing that the more subtle 
your system becomes based on what you take out of it, the more you're able to recognize where the dysfunction lies. And I started sensing that there was anxiety that was omnipresent, that was separate from world events. And the root of that I started to feel was uh, social media. Now there's a, a dilemma there because it's important for me and it's nice for me to interact with people who participate in what I do. And the way that they've made these programs is such that when you open them up, you're immediately kind of confronted with all this information that you didn't necessarily ask for, but which is um, really compelling to go down the avenues of. And I think the algorithms that have been um, implemented into these programs also make it so if you have your biases um, front and center, like most of us have, or many of us have at least, those algorithms will fill your, um, your feed with things that play into your bias. And so in a lot of ways, maybe not even bias, but fears or anxieties or, or what have you. And so in a lot of ways, it's like what you put into it is going to come back to you. And, um, and I think you find that there is a whole faction of society now that is unwilling to hear or to participate in things that are different than what their narrative is. But in a lot of ways, it's because these programs are, are structured in such a way that you can be forgiven for thinking that your way is more prevalent or more important than maybe it actually is. I don't know. I certainly don't know. But my point with this is that amidst my not knowing, the one thing I was able to understand was that its effect on me was not one of positivity. It was something that put into my life this constant sense of, of what if and fear or outrage or, or divisiveness or conspiracy or any of these things. So I decided to uh, find a way to interact with the people that I want to interact with based on my work without participating in the feed. And after looking up online how to do that, like, is there a way? Because I tried to, within Twitter or within Instagram or what have you, um, select certain words that if they came up into the feed, it would like mute it, but it doesn't work. It just, it's just so chaotic and so um, wild, wild west that it always just kind of seeps its way through. So as much as you want to have things that you're interested in that are aside from world events that you have no control over, it still seeps through. So I just decided that I would immediately, upon getting rid of it from my favorites, 
on any of my devices or my work computers or, or anything. When I did need to post something, like for this podcast or, or any of the work that I've got coming up or the green screen stuff for the upcoming shows, I would just simply divert my eyes when I opened up Twitter because that was basically the, the platform that I used the most. And I would divert my eyes from the right-hand side of the screen and just train myself to focus directly on the mentions button. And I would click that immediately. And then I could see um, who's been interacting and if anybody has questions and if I have time for them, that's my way of doing that. And then I post what I need to post. And then that's it. And then I just turn it off. Man. Replaced coffee with rose-flavored tea. I like it. There's a flavor that I never anticipated would be something that appealed to me as much as it does. But the scent of rose and the taste of rose, I actually quite like. I think it goes back to when I was a kid in the washroom. My mother had a rose-scented um, air freshener. And uh, I think it just imprinted itself on me when I was three or something. And the smell of rose implies something that I am willing to accept as comfort at this point. <laughs> and I guess whatever, whatever it takes for your wheels to get traction in the mud of life at this point, you should, um, <laughs> you should accept and not question too much, I guess. Unless it's causing you harm. Or others. So regardless, um, it's been a couple of months now that I have been not actively spending my off time scrolling through social media. And the first thing that occurred is I realized how much time absent-mindedly I spent on those platforms and absent-mindedly because I would uh, you know I, I got into this pattern that if I was working and I was exporting a song I've been writing a ton just as a sideline I've been writing a ton and it's going very well but if I was exporting a file or if I was doing something that um, had a bit of a break in the weather absent-mindedly I would just check social media I just open it up in Google and then I would hit my favorites and and so when I removed that link from my favorites the amount of times that I unconsciously went for that was surprising to me because when it wasn't there it would sort of snap me out of this trance and I'd be like oh what am I doing oh right I'm not looking at that anymore and when I saw it only took a couple of weeks for my screen time to be basically half of what it was. And at first I was afraid that by not participating in it, other than, again, you know, the people that I, I want to participate and my work and answering questions, because that's, it's a great platform for that. And it's a really important way for me to to connect with people at this point. So don't get me wrong there. But when I first did it, I was afraid that my lack of 
uh, awareness of world events or my lack of maybe not awareness of world events because how much of that is things that you can trust is is open for debate on any side of the of the coin but you know what it's like with your social media every day you're like oh this happened and this is outrageous and this horror and this atrocity and this you know uh, celebrity doing something stupid and then the outrage against them and then the outrage against those who choose to cancel them and all these things take up so much time that I ran a, I when I when I didn't do it I was all of a sudden like oh, I've got all this time in the day which if I was also continuing to sort of focus on the obsession that is my work as opposed to try and balance that in some way I guess I could have seen that as a positive I could have said okay well that's just more time for me to write music or do any number of these sort of creative endeavors that I have been plotting but hand in hand with this um, scaling back of my of my social media involvement came a scaling back of my work obsession consciously recognizing that there's limits to how much work I should be doing in a day before that becomes a diversion from thinking about or dealing with the things that I need to think about and deal with so what do you do with this extra time well I've never read you know I was never an avid reader although I can read of course I have never spent enough time with books to become very good at it and I guess for those who read a lot that would seem like an absurd statement it's like well you can read how can you not be good at reading but what I found is when I had this time and I started reading I couldn't focus it's like I had so much going on even just sitting and being in a comfortable position get a cup of tea or or your work's done and you've got time and it's all good it's just it was so hard to focus so I've been practicing reading and that's been um, really good for me actually excuse me tea another thing that I realized is I thought that by not being up to speed with all these perceived or otherwise current events that that lack of information would make me vulnerable in some sense like I need to know I need to stay on top of what's going on otherwise you know who knows I wouldn't be prepared for some eventuality but I would suggest that if there's anything that is directly going to affect you something that you need to really be prepared for like to evacuate or um, you know some other traumatic world event that's happening I doubt that you wouldn't find out whether or not it's friends or family 
or any number of people who are around you. I doubt you wouldn't find out within an hour of these things happening if it was that important for you to have to really um, scramble away from. And so over the past month or two that I've been experimenting with this, uh, my anxiety has gone down a lot to the point where I'm on the west coast of, of North America. I'm in Vancouver. And we've got, over the past two days, because of the wildfires in Washington, Oregon, and uh, northern BC, the air quality in Vancouver has been reported to be the worst on the planet for the past few days. So although it's sunny, what it looks like in Vancouver right now is that you've got a huge mass of low-lying clouds, but it's not clouds, it's smoke. And it's very difficult to breathe. You can't take the dogs out. You know, it's, it's, and when the sun does peer through it, it's truly an apocalyptic look. It's like the sky is blood red and everybody's on edge, not only because of the smoke, obviously, but because of everything that is going through the world at this point. And although that stress compounded with personal stress that uh, there's no real need for me to get into, but I'm sure that if I did, most of you would be able to relate family, kids, work, money, friends, uh, life, death, the future, all these things compound. But I feel more capable of navigating that right now as a result of finding and continuing to find some methods to relegate social media to a place in my life that is useful rather than addictive. I saw a show the other night about this as well. And if you're, uh, if you're online, I, I think it's interesting. It was called the social dilemma and hand in hand with this that uh, has been going on for the past couple of months. A friend of mine wrote me two days ago and said, Hey, you should, uh, you should check this out. I'm about a third into it and it's, um, I'm not a huge movie or, or, or film buff, so I don't have a huge opinion on it yet, but my thought is that it's something that is uh, a real problem and is becoming seen as such. And I guess all I'm here to say prior to talking about the new black is that in my experience, finding ways to participate with the people who support your work and whom you care about without having to go down these social media rabbit holes has been very good for my anxiety. And that includes comment sections. And that's not only for YouTube videos that I put up which it's, I think, for any 
artist. It's not healthy to participate in that because it's equally enticing to um, to buy into the accolades as it is to internalize the criticisms when ultimately both of those things will cause your work harm on some level because either you second guess it or you are too confident in things that perhaps require some some editing but also news sites as well or even YouTube videos that you're watching that you enjoy even it has nothing to do with with my work anytime I scroll down to any comment section it's almost as if and I think I had mentioned this in the last one there's so much anxiety and there's so much divisiveness in the world right now and we've been trained to a certain extent to feel like all our voices are um, needing to be heard online to the point where um, there's all this free-floating hostility and no place to put it and this sense of maybe cultural entitlement that makes us feel like we deserve to be heard and that other people need to hear what it is that we feel about things and maybe that's an extension again I don't know I'm just spitballing maybe that's an extension of the lack of ease in which social interactions are able to be taken place lately so as opposed to it being as overtly negative as it seems on the surface perhaps underneath that it's just a need for attention or connection in a less condescending way I guess and I find that topics that are divisive in any way I'm not even talking politically but things like pineapple on pizza or croc shoes things that are of no significance really become the subject of vitriol that is disproportionate to what the emotional content that these things should house warrant and it's easy as well I think to get sucked into that and think wow that was a that was a cruel thing that somebody said but it was also phrased in a way that I find fault in that so I'm chomping at the bit to fight and to argue about these things with people that you don't know it's enticing and I think a lot of the algorithms that these programs share take into consideration human nature at our most primal or desperate or needy because ultimately people just monetize all of this 
I've found, and I'm sure uh, many of you can relate to this as well, YouTube has turned into something that is very frustrating. So years ago, um, I got rid of cable. There was no need for it because there's Netflix or or YouTube or, or, or whatever you wanted. And anytime I went back to cable, because they were losing so much revenue, they had to offset that loss by cheaper production values and more commercials. In fact, I watched a TV show on regular cable maybe about a month ago. And for every five minutes of content, there was five minutes of commercials. And the commercials are typically, I guess it depends on the station, but they're EQ'd and compressed so that they can remain within the parameters of what is acceptable for that channel. Like I'm sure there is guidelines as to what your, your, uh, your DB, your volume can be on these commercials. Yet there's a loophole that I've heard from uh, a mastering friend of mine who says you can compress it and EQ it so you stand out more within that parameter of what is acceptable volume-wise. And all these commercials that go between the, the programming are so desperate for your attention and for your money and for your... A lot of them even try and go for, you know, how do we annoy people? So they look at the screen. So you have this program that you're vaguely interested in. And then for every five minutes of that, you've got five minutes of screeching, harshly EQ'd, desperate ads. And it was shocking. And it made me think, okay, well, I'm glad that I don't have this. Yet, slyly over the past month or so, YouTube, and it's even with my own content when I put it up, they've changed the ways that uh, creators of content advertise. And it started that it, anytime I put up a video and it says monetization, I just say none. And down the line, uh, you know, the, the management team that I work with, they will then put it up for monetization uh, because I just, you know, I figured that they've got a better idea of how to do that. But the only thing I ask is that it's not interspersed throughout it. So every five minutes of podcast and then there's a commercial, you know. But YouTube now gives you incentives to do these things. Like if you monetize your work with these sorts of ads or this rollout or this banner or interrupting it every five minutes, then they can promote it differently or, or all these things. And, you know, typically while I'm working, I've got these, I don't know, uh, meditational YouTube channels. There's like 10 hours. Meditative mind is one. It's, you know, it's just visuals and some humming sounds basically. And through that, the algorithm then suggested a bunch of other, you know, these sort of quasi hippie channels that they would think I would like, or the algorithm would think I would like. And so you have these drone footages over Fiji or something. And every five minutes, 
it then goes to this brash loudly eq'd and compressed commercial for tide pods or or armpit deodorant or some guy shaving his balls or something and it's i guess it's inevitable if we've got a society that has been relegated to their computers for not only social interaction but also entertainment that of course we're going to want to monetize this but i think within that is maybe the root of a lot of this problem and that's how much do you need you know i think as as a species again as an entity we're imperfect in the sense that we are imperfect and therefore in the quest to sort of perfect ourselves we're looking for something to fill that void and i think we've been trained to think that what's going to fill that void is stuff so yeah any of these people that work at these companies of course there's an opportunity to make immense amounts of more capital by taking this cool platform and then monetizing it and making the algorithms you know you've looked at sneakers once over the past four years and now every third suggestion is like sneakers and where to buy them and so i would suggest that these things are in a very similar way to twitter facebook instagram all these things youtube netflix it's all part of the same kind of dysfunction and i think it adds to an underlying and low humming sense of discontent that is clearly already there by our very natures but you compound that with you know you're not good enough you're not you're not attractive enough you need to be more afraid you need to be more critical you need to be more um suspicious like all these things i think that it kind of has gotten away from humans to a certain extent and it's become this sort of mass hypnosis so regardless i don't know clearly but what i do know i'll say it again is that by finding a way to relegate it to a slightly more healthy place my anxiety has dropped so take that as how you would and maybe it has nothing to do with that but i'm just rolling with it where are we we're on the new black by a strapping young lad so i got the wikipedia page up here so i can start going through this a little bit new black in some ways was my favorite strapping album although alien i'm most proud of city i thought was the best the new black in some ways was my favorite and it's not because of the music the music was okay it was quickly written it was a weird sound but the intention and what it was that was trying to be conveyed 
on this record by me was something that I needed to take a significant leap of faith to do. What do I mean by that? Well, after Alien and Synchestra and all the things that went on with Hummer and DevLab and trying to sort of reverse the energy that I had consciously allowed myself to participate in with Alien, I felt like I had fucked myself up again. And as a side note, a lot of these podcasts, I'm recounting these events from upwards of 27, 25 years ago. And I think it's fair for me to recount them in the ways that are most accurate. And all that paranoia and all that up and down, left and right, and all the things that went into it, I'm happy to recount. But that's not the way that I feel anymore. But there's a few more that were full of that. And I think the New Black was the last one that was really full of paranoia. But it was a different type. I remember when Alien came out and we did the Sounds of the Underground tour. And then all these things came up for OzFest and Download Festival. It was like the band was ready to take the next step. And I remember thinking, although not clearly enough to articulate at the time, that I was now ready to be done with this. However, I think one slightly irritating personality quirk that I have had for years, which has served me well to a certain degree, is that I have to finish what I committed to. Not necessarily what I started, but what I committed to. And with Strapping, I had signed a five-record deal. And although we had done um, No Sleep to Bedtime, the live record, and uh, For Those A Boot To Rock, <laughs> the DVD, there were still five records to do. And after Alien, I remember thinking, I can't do this again at all. Not in a dramatic way like it was with City, hand against the forehead. Oh, I can't do this again. I remember with Alien, I was thinking, oh, I, I really can't do this again. But that was struck up against the wall of, yeah, but you committed to do it. So even in a sense, trying to find an avenue with Twitter, how do I participate with the people who support what I do and whom I care about without having to go down this feed? How do I make this fifth strapping record that summarizes what I've learned from this and says goodbye? So even the artwork 
Whereas most of the strapping stuff was really dark. Alien was really dark and City was really dark and color-wise a lot of black and what have you. This one, it was important for me and in conversation with Travis Smith, who did the album art again, that it needed to be color. And that thought started by an online um, fractal generator during Alien, I became very interested in mathematics in that sense, in a very vague sense, and fractals and what have you. And I found online a generator that when you could that you could put in mathematical equations and it would generate sounds based off of the equation. And I became really interested in the Mandelbrot set, which is again paraphrasing a type of equation that produces a visual fractal that wherever you magnify, it just creates more and more fractals. It's like um, an infinite, infinite visual field. And so when I put in the, the Mandelbrot equation, it ended up creating this image that was very colorful. It was almost like, you know, party colors and it had some bleeps and bloops that were interesting that I used in the song Hope and I loved the idea that by bringing the whole concept of strapping into the light you know with the white and, and, and the colors and all this that I wouldn't be hiding anything because I think up to this point there was a lot of shame that was um, hand in hand with what I was doing with strapping. I would participate in these songs and ideas and musical motifs, but it was really with this sense of like, almost like a childish, well, you shouldn't be doing this. And it wasn't until the new black where I was able to say, well, the reason I'm doing it is because this is what I need to go through. This is what I need to work through and so I don't want to be embarrassed of it I was still afraid of it at that point but I didn't want to be embarrassed of it and so I wanted the font and I wanted the artwork and I wanted the music to be almost um, empty I wanted it to be almost what you see is what you get so without immense amounts of, of overdubs like I had done with Alien or immense amounts of destructive sounds like I had done with City or even in regards to like the more empty sense of SYL that was still mired in something that by the time I got to the new black I was committed to uh, working through. I wanted to make it almost like pop music and by that, I don't mean the, the sound. I meant the aesthetic. I meant the production. I meant just the things about what was going on in the scene at that point. I wanted to incorporate that. So the, the whole point of the exercise became a product. And in that way, I felt I could be sarcastic 
in the ways that I had been earlier on. Heavy is a really heavy thing. While still being able to finish my obligations. And what is often the case for me is when I start something and then I start getting into it, I lose sight of my original thought. In fact, any record that I would do that I don't get excited about, even if its intention is to finish it, I would be suspicious of. So by the time this was done, I was like, okay, well, let's go do OzFest. Let's go do Download. Maybe this whole trip can be salvaged and become this other thing. So on a production front, I hired a mixing engineer named Mike Fraser, who was from Vancouver and had done work with Metallica and Aerosmith and a lot of bands. And he was kind of known for being in the same sort of league as Randy Staub and all these cats who had made these pivotal records in my youth. In fact, Mike had done Pump by Aerosmith, which was a big record for me uh, in my grade 12 year, I guess. But this is where it started to get a little um, interesting with this record because we recorded it at a tiny little beat-up studio called Profile and then mixed it at this studio that I hadn't worked at before called The Warehouse, which is still in Vancouver, and it's one of the two top studios in Vancouver. There's the Armory, which I've done most of my work at, and the Warehouse. And they're very similarly uh, equipped, just, you know, top-level gear and all this. But the difference is Warehouse, I just, it's a different vibe. It's not a bad vibe, but it's, it's a lot of concrete and steel, and it's in the east end of Vancouver where you have to sort of drive through an alley that has a lot of homeless people typically in it and, and you know, people with addiction and, and all this. And then you go into this compound that's just concrete and glass and, and, you know, very fancy. And at the time that this record was being recorded, it was, you know, in those bleak months, January, February, at least in Vancouver, it gets that way. It's like the sky is like light gray and just bleak. And the combination of the studio, that sort of aesthetic that I was going for with the record, and the fact that as talented as an engineer that Mike Fraser is and was, and as good as a, of a guy as he is, uh, I really like Mike. He was used to mixing and not allowing the bands to be in the room. And I remember saying to him, man, this is not going to, this is not going to go well. <laughs> I'm so connected to what it is that I'm producing that you can guess at what it is that I'm looking for. And perhaps with some bands that don't have as distinct a vision for what they, they're trying to achieve as I, that would work. But I said to him, hey man, you know, you can do this, but I guarantee you that when I come in to listen to it, I'll have six dozen notes. Don't take that as disrespect. Take it as you're working with somebody who has a very distinct vision. And I remember the first song that he mixed was Almost Again. And I went into this, 
you know, concrete steel room on this bleak day and he sat back and played it for me. And I was like, sounds really good. Here's my thoughts. And the look on his face was just like, oh, really? And I was like, oh, yeah, really? <laughs> and that took us about a week of butting heads before I recognized that we were on the same team and he recognized that I knew what I wanted. And then by the end of it, it ended up being a record that, although weird sounding, was cool. And he did a really good job. And although it didn't end up sounding exactly like what I had hoped it would sound like, it sounded like what it was supposed to sound like. Gene, as always, uh, hit a home run with the drum tracks. For all the ups and downs that we've had, maybe not professionally, but just musically, I'll say it again uh, till the end of my days that uh, I love Gene, and he's one of the finest metal drummers to have ever lived. And one of the things that he consistently did on this record, as well as Alien, and specifically Alien and the New Black, is he dedicated himself to making those drum, those drum tracks uh, perfect. And with life and with flow, and, and uh, the New Black was another example of him really uh, making a statement on his on his drum tracks and uh, just beautiful performances. And likewise, with Alien, because I was so focused on my objective and because Byron was out with Fear Factory and because Jed was in Philadelphia, I ended up doing much of the recording, bass, guitar, what have you. That was just, it was easier for me to get it through as opposed to have people come in for a couple of days and then try and teach them this bizarre stuff. That when it came time to the new black, to do the new black, it was really exciting for me and us to do it in a way that maybe psychologically I knew this was the end. That's a stretch. I knew that this was the end. Maybe I wasn't brave enough to tell them yet, and maybe I had hoped that upon getting out on tour, I would be rekindled and I would find a new lease on it that then I could sustain into a career. But let's be honest, I knew that this was the end on many levels. I thought, well, all these guys have been through so much with this band and with me that it would be great to make it simple this time so we would rehearse it I wrote the material really quick I did a lot of it on a little four track machine in my living room and then sent it to everybody but most of the stuff was written within a month maybe two months and then I would send it and then we would get together and rehearse but this time I really wanted to come together with Jed on the guitars because Jed's a, a an incredible guitar player you know he was one of the best guitar players I had seen for metal he had the best tone he was just so right as a metal guitar player and still is 
that we sat together and although while we were in strapping with all the you know baggage that we had sort of accumulated between us there was a certain amount of trepidation for both of us but we sat together and for the first time kind of worked on parts you know i had written the riffs but jed had you know here here's some ideas um you know here's here's maybe this riff can be interpreted this way and uh you know a lot of things came together that gave us an interesting sort of kinship during this record that although there was again a lot that had happened between us it was nice to have that and then as opposed to me um lording over him as i was wont to do we put each person with their own engineer and i just made sure that everybody knew the parts and then just left them to their own devices and then when they were happy with the performances is when it was done as opposed to me um refining them or or what have you i admit that i would maybe take things and move them around or maybe take a riff that was played really well and then repeated in another part but it wasn't changing it it was just massaging it and the same thing with byron byron had been out with fear factory and he had spent a ton of time learning a new bass style and i think there's there's a distinct possibility that because i love bass so much I've always been very critical with bassists. And so Byron, I think, felt he had something to prove on the new black as he wasn't really present during Alien in regards to just physically being there because of the tour schedule with Fear Factory that when he came to do the new black, he was prepared and he did a fantastic job. And so when the recording started to come together, it was a very simple recording. There are kind of natural drum sounds for the most part. Jed on one side of the spectrum, me on the other. When there was a solo that either of us were doing, there was no rhythm on our side. Bass was pretty much straight up. Keyboards were done by a friend of the band named Willie, who ended up playing with us for that tour cycle. And it was basic keyboard stuff, you know synths some samples and then i would then take my ableton program that i had become so fond of during the alien session and then do certain things in the background but not excessively and then even with the vocals up to this point a lot of how i was able to represent my vision as a vocalist was to do multi multi tracks you know big choirs of me and double quadruple vocals and and all these sorts of things and with this one um i decided to do a single vocal maybe i would double certain parts but for the most part it's just one voice and i had been sort of inspired by watching the other bands that were in that circle at that point you know, with Hatebreed or Lamb of God or, or Unearth or any of these bands, I wanted to take a similar kind of approach with my vocals. And, you know, it kind of worked. It kind of worked, but I also realized that by doing it that way, that my 
vocal style is fundamentally a little different and it's taken me up to this point to sort of find my voice I think but this was maybe the first time that I experimented in the the vulnerability that comes from not multi-tracking everything so with the songs and with the lyrics it became a real point for me to not only make an exit but also express my respect for what had happened I think up to this point I had felt either fear or flippancy in regards to strapping you know like oh it's just that I never wanted to do I never wanted to do uh, super heavy metal I wanted to do other things I just fell into this so therefore strapping doesn't mean anything to me it's kind of the narrative that I had but with this album I wanted to say oh I didn't realize how much this meant to me you know but also I have to be clear that this isn't who I really am anymore even the song hope is a great example of that you know uh, I gotta find the lyrics here but we are not the same but I've learned respect was the last line of that song wrong side there's an interesting lyrical slant that basically summarizes the realizations that I had about this if I can remember woke up screaming on the wrong side of the head dreaming of demons that are better off dead and now I know I'm accountable for all I've said before but I just can't get up and get off the floor and then it's like the other side of your personality say the words and I'll be gone say the words and I'll be gone forever singing the good for the bad in the age of the fall and the enemy sings for the whole world even you suck there's a song that's it's like I felt that with the Oz Fest coming up and you know main stage performances at all these big festivals that this tiny little strapping young lad thing that I had started years ago that got no attention and that was so rooted in this kind of petulant tantrum had become this product so in the beginning I remember touring what was that tour stuck mojo and testament and strapping was opening and I would just be on stage just yelling at people just being like go fuck yourself basically but there was nothing really to lose at that point people were just confused they're just like who's this who's this kid telling us to go fuck ourselves fuck you but then by the time it got to the new black I'd be like go fuck yourself and the audience would be like yeah we'll go fuck ourselves <laughs> and I remember thinking wow that's like that's like gross in a way 
because I wasn't saying those things to be uh, like to try and make a catchphrase for myself. I wasn't being provocative on stage because I was trying to establish some sort of persona. That's just where I was at. And so with this one, I thought songs like Anti-Product or You Suck. I was like, if we're going to be doing these shows, we're going to be doing OzFest and all these really commercial ventures. Then if you could be sarcastic about what your intent in the beginning of this band was in light of how you see it now, that could be an angle that you could grab onto and really get a record out of. And that's what it became, Far Beyond Metal. You know, Fucker. All these songs that are almost childlike and silly and very like open and kind of colorful and and then if if you're interested if you're if you listen to this and you would like to go further into lyrics I think knowing what I'm talking about now, if you listen to the lyrics, if you read the lyrics of The New Black, it makes perfect sense. Even Decimator, the end of it, there's a big group chant, S-Y-L. The whole idea is this thing has become this thing, this monster. And the only things that I want to say to that monster is, oh, I've learnt the air of my ways and no disrespect. I don't disrespect this band. I don't re- disrespect this scene. And if I had come across as that in the past, it's because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, penetrate and decimate my soul. It's like everything about it is like overtly heavy metal too. Far Beyond Metal was taken from an old song that I had written for Um, city but then in putting together the album the deadline to deliver this album was only a couple of months we had to do the Ozfest we had to do all these things and I honestly just wanted it done I figured that if I could just get this album out finish the contract go do these shows then it would be finished And even as it says in the last line of The New Black, as much as we don't show, our world has been blackened. The whole idea with that song and this album was, I understand that I'm moving on. I understand that things are now about to change. But I take responsibility for what I've done, who I am, the mistakes that I've made, and the disrespect that I felt I had been uh, embroiled in. And Far Beyond Metal was a throwback, but it also seemed to make sense. I think that the version of Far Beyond Metal, in fact, a lot of the songs on the new black are, they don't really stand the test of time for me. But again, the reason why this record was is um, of monumental importance to me. During the same time, I had produced a Guar record 
Brocky came up, Dave Brocky came up and stayed with me and my wife for a month or so. And then I went to Richmond, Virginia, and I worked with them at their compound down there. And I loved Dave. And he was one of these people that, although perhaps almost the closest to feral of any human being I've ever met, also contained a spontaneity and an intuitive nature that just by sort of speaking around him, I found that I could find what I was saying just by how it reflected off of him. So I had him, I asked him to sing Far Beyond Metal. And on the song Fucker, uh, there was a friend of mine, or an acquaintance rather, that was an artist around Vancouver named Biff, Biff Naked. And about the same age. We'd grown up around the same time, same scene. Although we had never really interacted, we were aware of each other. And she had made a name for herself with a solo career and had found uh, a fair amount of success in Canada and abroad, I believe. And so when I was looking for someone to sing, because as should be abundantly clear by this point, having uh, female voices on my work is of great interest to me. Uh, I asked her to sing and it was nice to have her, in, nice to have her involved. And uh, almost again, I think if there's a song on this record that summarized exactly what it was that I was trying to do, uh, this song would be the one. You know, so you're leaving, so you're on your own. State your reasons, so you're all alone. Almost again, almost again, almost again. At the speed of light I will be, what is it? At the speed of sound I will be found. At the speed of sight, speed of light I will be sighted. The whole idea is, I'm out of here. But it is, is clear to me now, that wasn't clear to me at that point, or at least not as clear as it is now, is that my subconscious knows more then my mind will allow me to recognize. And I write from a place of subconscious inspiration. So oftentimes songs like Almost Again or Hope or Monument or anything that has a lyrical slant that in hindsight is very clear to me what its purpose was. At the time, they're just words. And it took finishing the record and then ultimately playing the download festival for me to understand what it was about. And that seems odd to a lot of people that I know. A lot of people think that, um, that is maybe just being ignorant or naive on my part, but I hold to, I write unconsciously my subconscious knows what it is that I need to say and what I need to do. And if I follow it, then in hindsight, I'm able to listen and say, oh, okay, I understand what was coming out at that point. 
And then when we went out and did the Ozfest, I remember telling the band prior to that, I said, after this record, I'm done. After this cycle, I'm done. But it was a heady period, and I think everybody was thinking, oh, that's just Dev being Dev again, you know. He said that after City, he said that after Alien. You cry wolf so many times, and then eventually people are like, yeah, sure, right on. But I remember saying, no, I'm serious. This time, once this contract is finished, I'm out. And then we did the Ozfest, and it was successful for us. We started doing these other tours, and it became more successful. And then finally we had a show at the Download Festival in the UK. And it's online. It's uh, strapping download. And it was a great show. Like, you know, I don't know how well the performance holds, holds up in hindsight for me personally on a vocal level. But how it was great is every now and then as a singer and as a frontman, I have these nights where I am not self-aware I'm not stressed about saying the right thing. It's not rehearsed. There's no pressure that I feel. Some nights I'll play in front of 300 people and can't seem to get it together and my brain won't connect with my mouth. But this show, it worked. Sound was good. Whenever I went to say something, the words came out coherently. I felt I was being reasonably clever and reasonably funny. And the reaction was fantastic. All the stars kind of lined up for what that was at that time. Yet, when I was on stage, I remember looking out over this sea of people and thinking, oh, I can't do this now. This is too much because I've got a megaphone. The more popular that I become, that this becomes you have a megaphone and what it is that you've chosen to say will become your legacy in some way and also we live in a society where people fetishize uh, fame or attention to the point that if something becomes popular regardless of what it is it becomes more part of the social fabric and once that happens, whether or not it's the way people in power speak or what type of popular media becomes financially successful, if something seems to be connected to fame and power, society seems to be able to rationalize anything. But at that point, the ramifications of doing that you get clouded by the fact you're being paid for it or you're you're playing in front of a lot of people or what have you but I realized I was like on stage and I thought man this whole thing this whole strapping thing started with me being hurt the whole thing started with me trying to get through trauma and not being emotionally available enough to articulate that in ways that 
wasn't just chaos. And then now I'm looking out and I see people with like, hell yeah, you fucking suck on their shirt. Or any number of like strapping things or fuck you and your shitty music. Go fuck yourself. All this sort of stuff that in the beginning I had no thought that it would ever get any sort of traction. And so finally when it did, I thought, oh, I can't do this. And it was at that show that I saw the writing on the wall for it. I was like, well, this is going to become your trip with your weird hair and, you know, everybody thinking you're crazy and drugs and and go fuck yourself and the world sucks and all this stuff that, that because there's money involved with it, a lot of the people that were surrounding that at the time were very happy to encourage that in whichever ways it would grow. In their defense, had it been any other type of energy, uh, they would have been fine with that too. I don't think a lot of people think about it to the level that I tend to. But the problem is, is, is if it's me, and if I'm the singer, and if I'm the one that is the creative drive in something like this, the person whom the ramifications of this are most directly going to affect is going to be me. And at that point, I remember getting off the stage and the crowd was awesome. Band was elated. Management was there. Everybody was talking about, man, this is going to work. And at that point, I sat with everybody and I said, hey, I hate to be a fun sponge here, but you remember that this album is it. And they were like, yeah, but we can't stop now. Look it. And I said, yeah, but we discussed it. And as much as I apologize for having, again, cried wolf in the past, this is it. After this, I'm done. And that was not a great vibe from that point on. I remember we did the end of the Ozfest and everybody was just done. Because at the end of the Ozfest, I remember that was the last tour. And I remember the label had invested $80,000 just to buy us onto this tour. And there was this sense that we quote unquote could have had it all. And Byron at the end of the Ozfest ended up just going back out with Fear Factory. And then we had to hire some different bass players to fill in for him. Jed at that point was, uh, you know, angry as we all were. And I remember we were, it was very difficult to sort of keep in my mind at that point, what it was that the music was supposed to represent live into a place that wasn't just comedic. And Gene was uh, really hurt and really upset. I remember the last show of the Ozfest, it was very difficult to get all of us off the bus, except for me. I was packed and ready to go. 
But I think ultimately, and this is something that, again, hindsight benefits us from having, is a couple of years later, in conversations with, with the three of the guys, Gene, Jed, and Byron, although there was a lot of work to be done to salvage these relationships, on a couple of occasions, certain people had mentioned to me that although they didn't see it at the time, we were all on a crash course for something terrible on an individual level. There was a lot of substances involved at that particular point. There was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of um, hostility. There's a lot of things that I think if you're looking for your musical career or your artistic career to go down in history as being some sort of, you know, romantic tragedy, then by all means, maybe that's something that you should consider con continuing. But when I think about Sid and Nancy or, or Kurt Cobain or any of these things, as romantic as maybe the images of these artists who ended up tragically losing their lives to their work or as a result of their work is it's not that for the people that are around them. It's not that for their kids. It's not that for their parents. It's not that for their friends. It's not that for their bandmates. That kind of martyr thing is fetishized because again, as a society, we seem to be so uh, intent on having fame and success as being the forefront of why we would do anything. So now I look at all of us in the band and for better or for worse, some of us have ended up in places that are good and some of us have ended up in places that are, you know, more trying or, or what have you. And not just the band, but the whole scene. But I think overall, we're all happy in a weird way. Maybe that's presumptuous. Maybe you'd ask them and they'd say, well, we would be happier had we done that. But when I think about Gene I, and I see him now, I see a really healthy, happy guy. Same with Jed, you know, and his kid and Byron and his kid and, you know, we're all okay, and we weren't at that time. And I think that if you find success when your platform that you're leaping from into that success is fundamentally unbalanced, I think that's when you really find problems. And I truly feel that success and fame and all these things that come with that sort of endeavor. It's all okay, but if you're not prepared for it, if you're not ready for it, if your intention of what it is that you're trying to say with your work is something that you can't put your whole heart into, 
then success will only magnify that problem. And I knew that strapping started as something that was a problem. It wasn't something that started because I felt I have this burning love in my heart to make this. It was the reaction to trauma. And I know that as a person, I'm too... My wiring, let's look at it that way, is delicate in the ways that I would not be able to, and I can say this with confidence, be able to traverse the type of success that I saw with that. So the new black became a monument, hence the name of the song, to the whole era of strapping and lead and what it meant to me. And it was a bittersweet, bleak, ironic, sarcastic, simplistic, haunted album that I remember when it was done, Gene and, and Rob Shellcross, who's now Gene's manager, listening to it in their car and coming back and saying, oh, this is great. It's like the kick drums feel like I'm having a massage during You Suck. <laughs> I remember that was Gene. He had it cranked up in his car and he said, the kick drums feel like, you know, like a massage. And it was, it was ultimately an experience that um, summarized what I felt I needed to learn from strapping. And that was respect for something. It was respect for something that I didn't understand. It was respect for something that I was participating in without much care. You know, all these people, all their lives, all their reasons for doing it, it was so wanton with me. It was just, it didn't matter. I would just, on a whim, I would do this and that and the other thing and then claim it as being just who I am or an artistic thing. And it was just... It's one thing to say, oh, I was being selfish. It's one thing to say I was being wrong. But that's not what the new black was about. The new black was, oh, I learned respect for this. I see what it is that I was doing. And I respect it. And I respectfully step down. And um, that led the way to the part two of my career that began with Ziltoid, which will be the next record I'll discuss. And as a sideline, I believe what I'm going into now with this new record I'm working on now is the beginning of stage three. So, here we were. I'll say to you, I can only imagine what uh, you're all dealing with. I know that I'm dealing with what I'm dealing with. And uh, I can't stress enough how important it is to pay attention to the fact that we're all dealing with this. 
I think in this age of isolation that we're in right now, it becomes easy to make the assumption that we're alone with this anxiety and with this stress and with this battle. But rest assured, we're all having to find ways to traverse this. And there's a real sense within that unity that we're not alone. So please take care of yourself. And uh, if you're finding that you've got things in your life that are causing you, and if you really look at it and, and are honest with yourself, if you're finding things that are causing you problems, or even not even legitimate problems, but just compounding the stress of what's going on right now, maybe take a, a, a second thought about whether or not it serves any purpose in your life anymore. And if it doesn't, then maybe have respect for it and, and let it go. This is Devin Townsend, and I would like to thank you for participating in my work. There's much more coming, lots more concerts coming up, and uh, I wish you a good day and lots of love. This is Dev, out.